0: For the sermon, I'm going to read our scripture reading, then I'm going to pray, then I'll preach the sermon. We've been going through the book of John, if you're new with us or if you're visiting, and the, the book of John, we're at chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, we're going to dip into chapter 12 as well. John chapter 11, verses 45 through John chapter 12, 1 through 11, the verses should be on your screen. I always invite you to participate Grabbing your Bible out or your iPhone or Android or your actually physical Bible. John chapter 11 verses 45 through John chapter 12 verses 1 through 11. A lot of Bible, again, say that unapologetically. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, or Sanhedrin, and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Should the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is none like you, majestic and holy and wonderful, working wonders Faithful from generation to generation. Faithful to our parents and our grandparents. There is none like you, O Lord. And this morning we just want to say that all adoration and acknowledgement of glory deserves to be given to you and you alone. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We come before you and recognize your majesty and your greatness among us. And Lord, we must confess that we have lost touch with our first love, you, and made earthly things like success and family and comfort more important than you. We confess that with our mouths we are devoted to you, but our lives and our words sometimes do not match what we say. Lord, please forgive us for our being concerned of our self-image or what other people think about us too much and for putting family and recreational activities before you. Forgive us, Lord God. We confess we need your help in these areas to grow, to please you. And Lord, we do want to give thanks to you, and thank you for all the children of this church that are a part of this church, babies, toddlers, children. I pray that you would just save all of them, that you would reach out your saving hand, your saving grace, and that you would open their hearts and minds to believe in the gospel of Christ. Thank you for all the visitors we've had during this COVID season. It's been both a surprise and a pleasant surprise and joy to see new faces, Lord. We just pray that they would feel welcomed and loved here at Bethesda and they would find a home here. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. And I thank you for the ways that you have blessed our church during the COVID season. And Lord, in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1, it says... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So, Lord, I just want to pray for our president, Donald Trump, and his wife, who came down with the coronavirus. Thank you that you seem to be making progress. I pray that he would continue to make progress. We wish a speedy recovery for him. Pray that you heal our president from this virus and strengthen him and help him. And uh, give him wisdom and strength and everyone around him as well, Lord God. Lord, I pray that you raise up more Christians in government, Christians in politics, Christian police officers, Christians who will fight for justice in our community. So much injustice um, every, everywhere we turn, Lord. I pray that you would raise up more believers to fight for justice. I pray that you bless our church numerically, spiritually, and financially. I pray, Lord, that there would be more churches planted in America and more people who would want to hear about the good news and come to saving faith in Christ. Lord, as we go through your word in John chapter 11 and 12, I pray that you would use it. pray that you would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Help us, Lord, to be devoted to you. Show us areas in our lives where we're not devoted to you and help us to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you've ever met anyone who's lost a ton of weight, had a big fitness goal, and they reached that goal, you know what sort of devotion they required and sacrificed to do that. As one who used to work sort of in this industry uh, several years ago for fun, as a hobby, I saw a lot of people who saw tremendous progress in their fitness goals. They had to make a lot of sacrifices and changes to see these changes. They changed the way they thought about food, the way they ate. They bought a gym membership and started working out even when it was uncomfortable. They said no to wine and Oreos and Girls Night Out and hanging with the guys when there was food and drink around. Because they sacrificial towards their goal. They bought supplements. They, they, they were willing to spend more money on cleaner food. What you saw is... Devotion on display, a sacrifice on display, because there was a love that was at hand, a goal, a desire to see their lives change, and they had the devotion and sacrifice to do it. Our actions always follow what we love the most. And if we love something enough, we're willing to make those sacrifices, usually. In this story today, we see the example of Mary leading through her devotion to Christ. It's very easy to say that we are devoted to Christ, but often it shows up in our sacrifices, in our actions. Claiming Christ with our words is good. We should claim Jesus and believe in Jesus. But our true love for him is shown not just with our words, but our actions and our commitment to him, especially when no one else is watching. This passage, we see that devotion to Jesus requires sacrifice. To be a devoted follower of Christ, it requires sacrifice. Before we get to Mary and the wonderful story that's widely known, we see this plot to kill Jesus continues. It's escalating. There was a huge uproar because Jesus heals Lazarus from the dead. Someone was dead. Jesus came and raised him from the dead. He's no longer dead. And this caused a huge uproar. And it's said that many people were believing in Jesus because of this healing if you would catch it, you would see that this was an answer to prayer, because in verse 42, Jesus prays this, I knew that you, Jesus talking to God the Father, always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus prays a prayer, heals Lazarus from the dead, and many people are coming to faith in Jesus. God answers his prayer right then and there on the spot. That's One of the reasons why Jesus did so many miracles, it wasn't because he was trying to get a lot of attention or a show for himself. He wanted to help people and serve people and provide, but it was also to authenticate his divinity to reveal that he is not just some other Galilean peasant kind of person that he is in fact God, that he's in fact the Messiah. So he does this miracle and many people are coming to faith, but some are not. The hostility and hatred and division continues. In verse 46, it says that some of them, these tell kind of people, went to go tell the Pharisees and the religious leaders of what Jesus had done. So we see Jesus does a miracle. He raises someone from the dead. Some come to faith. Yes, others don't. They want to get him in trouble. Jesus is a polarizing figure. And whenever you're a polarizing figure... Or when there is a polarizing event in our community, it tends to divide people. When the towers were struck on 9-11, Americans grieved, but there were videos of people dancing in the streets. When the St. Louis Blues beat the Boston Bruins in the NHL Stanley Cup Finals, people of St. Louis celebrated. People in Boston mourned. Mention any major political figure or a person who has a large following on social media. You'll have two well-intentioned people say, I really like this person. Someone else say, I can't stand that person. That, that's kind of the polarizing people and events. That's kind of the reaction that comes up. and This, this is what's happening in Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life. It's, it's not everyone loves him. It's not everyone hates him. He, 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 he commands attention and godliness and you give him his all. And some people are down with that and other people are not. He's a polarizing figure who has a way of drawing attention like this. And so some people tell on him and they go to the Sadducees Sanhedrin, which is mostly religious leaders. And they have more than just power in the church. They have power to execute judgment in society. So they have a meeting about Jesus To figure out what are we going to do. Verse 47. What are we to do? NIV study Bible. NIV says what are we going to accomplish? The footnote says nothing. That's what they're going to accomplish. They're going to do nothing but waste time and reveal their jealousy of Christ. They're having a meeting about Jesus. And they're trying to figure out who's this guy. He's turned water into wine. He raised someone from the dead. He provided food for 5,000. Probably upwards of 15,000, 20,000 It's kind of hard to look out in the field and number how many people there are there. And they're trying to figure out what what should we do with them. Usually those in government or people have this kind of power. What they do is they say, how did he break the law? What did he do wrong? How can we give him a trial? That's sort of the general way of doing it. Here, they they don't talk about any of that at all. They say he's performing many miracles. They say if we don't stop him, everyone will believe in him. They say the Romans will come take our place and our nation. Look at the jealousy and rivalry and insecurity. There's, there's nothing here about giving an honest assessment of Jesus' ministry and life about did he do something wrong at all. There is none of that. All they're doing is uh, they're concerned about themselves, their power, their status. They're jealous. They see Jesus as a threat. That's why they're mad. They don't see anything wrong with him. They just simply see him as a threat. Paul wrote the book of Philippians early 60s. He's in prison, and he writes these wonderful words there about Christian community and unity in the body of Christ. He says this, do nothing. Last time I checked, nothing means everything. Do nothing from selfish, in that way. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Chapter one, uh, Paul talks about how there were people out there preaching Jesus, like me right now, preaching Christ, talking about Jesus, and some people were faithful and they really meant well, but other people weren't. Some, some preached Jesus out of wrong motives. Imagine that. Someone being a preacher, someone being in ministry for the wrong motives, and although that's bad, Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed, that I rejoice. That takes a tremendous amount of security in God to say, you know. I, I am the church planner guy, I'm the apostle guy, I'm the preacher guy, but some other people are preaching Jesus, what do I care, as long as Jesus is glorified, I'm happy with that. We have a lot of different ministries at Bethesda, I mentioned earlier, you know, things are starting up again, it feels exciting, it's somewhat normal, it's not normal, but it feels like we're getting there, and uh, for many of you who are so faithful over the years, decades and decades, um... You know, there's, there's always a time at some point for us to step back, to get other people in the game, to empower other people to lead, to be okay if someone sits in our spot, to be okay if someone else wants to, to help out. We, we, we have to be more devoted to the cause of Christ than to devote the cause of our own power, our own status. The more we think about ourselves or maybe my power or my seat, or my ministry, the more we might see other people as a threat. The more we are devoted to the cause of God and seeing Christ proclaimed, we might get hurt a little bit at first, but eventually we'll get over it and we'll say, like Paul, as Christ is proclaimed, that I rejoice. Someone wants to be godly, someone wants to proclaim Christ, someone wants to help out, praise God. Verse 45, the high priest steps on a scene, says his name is Caiaphas, his name is actually Joseph of Caiaphas. And he was a high priest. Essentially, it just means he was the head guy. They're having a meeting, a council, a Sanhedrin. He's the guy with the most religious power of that day. And he jumps in and he blurts out bluntly, verse 49, you don't know nothing at all. That's like our functional equivalent of of saying, you don't know what you're talking about. So he, he has the power to say that. And then he says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. At first, when you read that, you think, wow, he must be trying to defend Jesus. They're all making these lame assessments and trying to put him to death out of their insecurity. Caiaphas jumps on the scene. He must be a good guy. But actually, if you read on in the Gospels, you know that he was one of the main people that led the trial and condemnation of Jesus. He says this out of political overtones. Not because he really loved Jesus and believed in him. His job was to fear God, to promote justice, to be a blessing to the community, but he started being more concerned about himself and his power and his status, and he's interested in Jesus only for political reasons. Ed Stetzer says it this way When you mix politics with religion, you get politics. Sometimes influencers in social media and in the media want to make it seem like they know God or they like the Bible or because they love Jesus. Not because they love him, but because they want to use him. For some sort of agenda. Not everyone, but sometimes it's true of people. That's what Caiaphas is doing. That's who I'm thinking about right here in the text. Caiaphas. According to Caiaphas, Jesus needs to be executed, but he's thinking more about himself and, and his power and status and so on and so forth. He's thinking that if Jesus, who is a threat to himself, dies, he, he can securely have his position. But look at the power of God on display here. Even though Caiaphas' motives are incorrect, he actually says the right thing. He says that one man should die so the children of God could be grafted in. Children of God there in the original language could mean the Gentiles. Gentiles, anyone who's not a Jewish person, he's saying Jesus needs to die because there are more people that are going to come to faith in him. He says the right thing. Uh, and, and here, there's a little line here. One of my favorite parts of this whole passage is where John records, he did not say this of his own accord. I love that little expression there. It just, it shows God's control. Uh, it, he is not a puppet. God is not micromanaging him in some sort of sense where we don't have the freedom to say things. This is somewhat of a mystery, but God so sovereignly moves behind a person, a leader's words, that when he was speaking, God was speaking, and he said the correct thing, even though his motors were wrong. That is simply the power of God on display there, using a person who's far from God, so God could get glory through that. God is 100% control over everything over everyone. There's nothing that is a surprise to him. And you see God's hand behind the scenes working, working even now. The meeting ends and it says this. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There was not a single hint of humility whatsoever in the Sanhedrin council. There wasn't a hint of, maybe he could be the Messiah. Maybe we could be wrong. Have we ever thought about that? Maybe we should reassess ourselves and reassess the situation. Let's, let's do a little more investigating to look into him. Let's bring him in. Let's ask him some questions. And it's at some point later in the Gospels that, that happens. But right here it says they, they made plans to put him to death. There wasn't a single ounce of humility whatsoever. Unbelief runs deep in the heart. When people don't come to faith in Christ, it's a lot of reasons, it's never because of lack of evidence. Chapter one clearly teaches that God reveals himself to all creatures through conscience and through creation and through an inner sense in every person that says, I'm real, repent before it's too late. It's never because of lack of evidence, it's because of a hardened heart. That's the biblical language, hardened heart. Get into sin, love their sin, don't want to repent, don't want to give up. Their money, time, energy, effort, sexuality to God. They, want to, they just want to be... That some people who don't know the Lord just want to continue in unbelief simply because of sin and a hardened heart. That's, that's what's going on here exactly. Jesus knows that they're out to get him, so he doesn't foolishly just say, oh, come arrest me now. He goes to the wilderness area with his disciples, and the Passover happens, and he's going to the wilderness. He's going to the countryside to rest with his disciples. Pharisees say, if you hear, hear about this guy, let us know. We want to take him in. Caiaphas was concerned about his own nation, and many of us are too. I've heard on a few occasions people say things like, this country's in big trouble. If we don't make some changes, we're going downhill. I've heard people say that. Even, as I've mentioned this before, but even as a young pastor, sometimes I go to pastor's conferences and retreats, and I'm one of the youngest guys in the room, which I'm always soaking it all in because I know one day I won't be. And uh, some men from the older generation always like, Phew. being in ministry now is really tough. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And there's there's a fear, there's an anxiety that I sense with uh, some generations of where's where this going? Uh, my, my kids are going to be raised in this generation. My grandkids are going to be raised. It's, it's not the same like when I, when I was growing up. And my interest is particularly with the Christian church, not, not anything else specifically. And so I'm thinking, okay, about are there less people coming to faith in Christ? Are there more? What's going on with that? Is this, are these feelings that we're feeling together, is this true or not? I'm not sure. It's somewhat subjective, and we don't know what God has up his sleeve. But we do know church history. We know what's happened in the past. We don't know where things are going, but we know in the past. And I was reading a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. Evangelism in the Early Church. Long book, 400 plus pages. It talks about how did the church go from 12 to 1 billion. We started with 12, now we have 1 billion Christians. It's more specifically in the early church time, in the first century. And uh, I I was reading it, and I was just, I found it remarkable how not remarkable the ways of the early disciples were. There was nothing complicated about what they did. There was nothing extraordinary about what they did. It was very ordinary. It was just simply full throttle devotion to God. That's what the author argues. He says this I argue in the book that neither the strategy nor the tactics of the first Christians were, were particularly remarkable. What was remarkable was their conviction, their passion, their determination to act as Christ's embassies to the rebel world, whatever the consequences. No one with seminary degrees, a lot of them didn't know Greek, Hebrew, many of them were below the poverty line, and yet they were some of the main ways in which Christianity grew. How? What were the ways? I bring this up because a lot of times people come up with some sort of strategy for the 21st century American church that is some sort of novel idea. Like, let's go sing songs at Walmart to irritate everyone. Let's just do that. How annoying will that be? No, I'm not coming with you. Sorry. Sometimes people bring up ideas. I'm like, we don't have to accomplish. It doesn't have to be like that. It was never like that. It was always ordinary things. Here are some of the the things he mentions. Here are the main reasons why the early church grew. Telling non-Christians about Jesus. (laughs) That was the main one. Wow. Personal conversations with family and friends about Jesus. Daughter, son, grandkids, in-laws, people who don't know the Lord, over the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, just not overstepping boundaries, being respectful, but people who don't share your faith, sharing your faith with them. Emphasis on having people in homes, hospitality. I know in the suburbs, we like to look at our home as a refuge, but home is for this, for hospitality in part. Emphasis on church planning, not just being one church, but thinking how can we start more Churches strong church leadership, and reliance on the Holy Spirit. That was it. 400 pages talk about those things. Just, just simple stuff. Just Christians acting like Christians, just being f- devoted. So when we think about where we're going as we move forward, I, I don't speak for everyone, I don't speak for every church in America, but really it's not coming up with novel ideas. It's just if we, it's everyone coming together and being fully devoted. Bible reading, prayer, church, faithful church attendance, being on the lookout for evangelistic opportunities, looking at our homes not as refuge, but an opportunity to share. Not just saying, Oh, I've told the gospel to my son or my daughter a million times, they're never gonna listen. Maybe they will. To to keep praying for people, to to fight for justice, to be fully devoted. That's it. It's ordinary. Ordinary Christian living. We have an extraordinary God, but we are ordinary. We don't have to put the pressure on ourselves. It's just together as a church, being fully devoted to God and the basic things like faithful church attendance, Bible reading, evangelism, the basic stuff. That's what we see from Mary. We see sacrifice. We see devotion. That's where we start in chapter 12, where she enters the scene. And this is a big transition in the Gospel of John because, believe it or not, uh, although there's more than eight chapters left in John's Gospel, this starts the last week of Jesus' life. So this is the most important week in the history of the world. So much so that John de- dedicates several chapters to it. And Jesus, we're told, goes from Bethany, which is about two miles, to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus will ultimately rise from the dead. It was with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends. And we get to this, the famous, significant story of Mary and the perfume. And what she does is she takes perfume... Puts it on Jesus' feet and wipes her hair, wipes his feet with her hair. 21st century readers, we read that and we're like, like I would never want someone to put perfume on my feet. You wipe my hair, like this, is, this, is, this seems kind of odd for 21st century Western readers. I, I confess, it can, I understand what you're saying, but we have to remember the Bible is written for us, but not to us. It was written to someone else at first. So John's original readers would have understood this. That there is a lot of symbolism going on. In our day, symbolism has all but lost its taste, and it's a shame. There used to be all kinds of symbolic acts to our country. uh, Singing the national anthem and other things as well. um, Symbolic acts to God. People don't have a taste for this anymore. It's, It's really sad. But back in that day, symbol, uh, symbolic acts were huge. And what, what Mary was doing was showing her sacrificial love, her humility, and her commitment to Jesus through her symbolic acts. She's not saying, oh, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Uh, and then does nothing about it. But she's, she's showing with her sacrifice and her devotion that she's committed to Jesus. The gifts are fine. You know, if you have a birthday or a Christmas, you know, your grandpa here, you're going to get a sweater this year, I'm going to tell you. Your grandma, you're going to get some sort of perfume or creams, same stuff every year. When you get a a present, you're thankful for the present. Some of us enjoy receiving presents, some of us don't. But what the presents symbolize is more important than the actual gifts. It's a tangible evidence that someone loves us, that someone was thinking about us. That's the big deal. that's what's going on here. She's symbolically showing that she loves Jesus and that she's fully devoted to him with her actions. This perfume was expensive, cost a year's salary. This is not a direct application of the text, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the frugal route and the best route is not always the same. Jesus was not a penny pincher. He was cool with this, Notice Jesus doesn't interrupt her and say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! That's expensive. What are you doing? We should be wise stewards." Uh. He's he's okay with it. Sometimes it's okay to spend money on God's kingdom purposes and not feel bad about it. Right? We don't want to be reckless or foolish or irresponsible, but that's what Mary does, and Jesus thinks it's okay, and we should too. There's more going on here. It's it's not just symbolism. Symbolism is important, but there's actually more. She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, and this was considered to be below people back then. She does it anyway, showing her humility and commitment to God. Doing acts behind the scenes where, for most people, it would be considered below them is always a sign of a servant. It was scandalous for a woman back then to unbind her hair in public. A married woman could be divorced and a single woman could be stoned to death. Horrible. I mean, that's just sad that, that women had to go through that. That's being mistreated. That's not fair at all. And look at our Lord Jesus. Look at the love and grace that he extends. He's not like, oh, do you know the law about your hair? He knows that stuff doesn't matter. And yet by unbinding her hair, she shows her unwavering commitment and boldness to be devoted to Jesus. In the previous chapter, the Pharisee said, hey, if you know where Jesus is, let us know. We want to arrest him. And yet she, she's not concerned about her reputation, fear of man, uh, p- pleasing other people only, uh, worried about her life. She's, she's all in with Jesus. She's 100% dedicated to him. So she's willing to associate with him even when other people aren't. There's more going on. The last more is that ultimately this is a foreshadowing. Funerals were really expensive back then, and people spent a lot of money on funerals. And you can notice Jesus mentions the burial comment. She's doing this for my burial, because just in a few days, Jesus is going to die on the cross in your place for your sins and rise from the dead. Dead bodies had a lot of odor. People used perfume for the odor. This was a foreshadowing to what was about to happen, that Jesus Christ would ultimately die on the cross for the sins of those who believe in him. Mary shows that she's 100% fully devoted to Jesus, no matter the cost. That's the significance about what happens. And notice, her devotion doesn't get her universal praise. Judas jumps in there, the thief, Judas of Iscariot, and criticizes her. If you're getting criticism for being a Christian, that's a good sign. You have people in your family who don't believe... People wonder why you give money and time to God's kingdom purposes, why you make the Sunday church attendance more important than other things. If you you got people giving you flack for that, let me just tell you, you are in good company. Full throttle devotion to Jesus often, if not always, warrants, brings in criticism so if you' if you're getting criticized for your faith or maligned, let me just tell you I just want to encourage you to keep pressing on and continue to be faithful. Judas jumps in there and he he, he says the economical comment or at least that seems to be his motive at first, and he wonders why this wasn't used for three hundred denarii or used for the poor, but Judas was deceptive as it says in the text here, he was the guy who held the money back he was the church secretary. He was on the finance team. He was the finance guy, the accounting guy. He was in charge of the money. It said here that he used to help himself to the money bag. He was a thief. He wasn't interested in the poor. He was interested in himself. commentator noted that uh, since John knew that, Jesus, that, that Judas was taking money from the money bag, Jesus would have known too. And it just shows how Jesus didn't let even horrible things like that bother him, how he was so fixated on the mission of God. I was very encouraged by that. Jesus would have the composure to hang in there and be faithful to God the Father. Jesus defends Mary. Mary doesn't have to say anything. And he says, leave her alone coming to her offense so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That's the foreshadowing. For the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. Not in any way is jesus saying that we shouldn't take care of the poor in fact american church has uh this is an area where all of us could reconsider and grow in and try taking care of the poor is a very important thing to jesus in the bible but in deuteronomy fifteen eleven, that's where jesus is quoting it says for there will never cease to be poor in the land what jesus is saying is i'm about to die in a couple days You'll always have the poor with me. It's cool that she's doing this because I'm not going to be around forever. I'm only going to be around a couple more days. Not that we shouldn't take care of the poor. And he was quoting a Bible reference from Deuteronomy. Taking care of the poor is very, very important to God. You see, Lazarus jumps in the scene at the end. He never says anything. The Bible never records his second death. We learned that the religious leaders wanted to put Lazarus to death as well. Because he was a threat to their territory. Pastor Zach S.Y. notes something from this little passage here. Lazarus died. Jesus raised him from the dead. This is the very next day. And then Lazarus gets a death threat. You would think, he would be like, oh, I just got raised from the dead. Give me six months to enjoy life or something. Give me five months. Good grief. I just... I mean, how many people can say they came back from the dead? And this is the very next day, he gets a death threat. You know, healing is not heaven. Zach Wine says it's not everything. Just because something great happened to you on Monday, doesn't mean something bad won't happen to you on Tuesday. Just because you go home from the hospital this time, doesn't mean you will go home the next time. Uh, Often after success, there's a wave of suffering, circumstances change, people change, people come in and out of your life. It's important not to put your hope on your changing circumstances, but on God who never changes. To be fully devoted to God and not putting your hope on a change of circumstances. Despite what Mary and Lazarus have to go through, they remain fully committed to the Lord Jesus Would you say that you're fully committed to Jesus? We need to pick a side. We need to just say, I- I'm 100% in with Jesus, or I'm not with him, with him at all. This sort of one foot in, one foot out, coasting, reading my Bible when I want, being with God when I want, is, is not the way of biblical Christianity. We need not just to look at our words, but also our schedules, our sacrifices— For Mary, that meant giving up something expensive. That meant being sacrificial. That meant humbling herself. That meant being willing to associate with Jesus when other people wouldn't. That's what devotion looks like. In the early church, it was faithful to the church regularly gathering. It was evangelism. It was relying on the Holy Spirit. Nothing remarkable. No one's asking anyone to do anything remarkable. Never. We're just asking people to do the ordinary Christian things of being fully devoted to God and his purposes. The one foot in, one foot out, coasting kind of way, it just doesn't bring a lot of joy. To be fully in is the path to true Christian joy. Randy Alcorn wrote an article this past week. He says this. He's a famous author of the book, Heaven. We got got it back there on the shelf in the library area. He says this. I know people who say, now he's saying this. I'm not saying this. He says this. I know people who say, I don't have time to do a weekly Bible study, but they're actually spending the evening at home watching television or schooling through their phone or playing video games. So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of person will all these things make me? Certainly not a devout follower of Christ. As opposed to what kind of person will reading God's word and great books, meeting with Christ's body, and serving other people make me? Movies are awesome. We were just talking about movies before the service started. Sports are great. I played football for six years, loved being a part of it. Barbecues, parties, events, dinner with friends, video games, playing stuff. Wonderful. We can enjoy it. God provides many vacations, going on a couple of vacations a year. There's nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. We can enjoy those things. They help with our mental health, they help with our emotional health, too. The issue is when those things get in the way of the things of the Lord. We've made those things into an idol. We've made those things more important to God. We've shown our lack of devotion. Mary's devotion was sacrificial. She used something expensive. She humbled herself. She was bold. She wasn't concerned about what everyone thought. She was all in. She saw the beauty of Jesus, the loveliness of Jesus. No one ever spoke like this. No one ever did miracles like this. No one ever taught like this. And she said, I wanted to be all in with him. If you're not, I just want to let you know it's okay. There's grace today, there's patience today, there's gentleness from Jesus. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He doesn't look at you like tiss, tiss, tiss. He invites you to be all in, to consider areas of your life where you know that you could be giving up to God. He invites you to do that this morning. If you feel like you're struggling with your devotion to Christ, pray this prayer from Psalm fifty-one, twelve: Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. Let's pray. God, we want to be all in with you. We want to be fully devoted to you. Lord, please highlight areas in our lives, even right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just show us areas where we could be all in. Lord, none of us are perfect. We struggle. We need grace. We need help. We need the help of one another, Lord. Lord, help us to be sacrificial, to be bold, to be more concerned about you. Help us to taste and see the Lord is good. And the more we taste and see that you are good, the more we'll be willing to be fully devoted to you. Help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.